Please rise with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading today from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And I'll be reading from the NIV Bible, and it's on page uh, 955 on your Bibles. The Genealogy of Jesus. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile in Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. This is God's word. Christopher Wright, uh, an Old Testament scholar and president of John Stott Ministries over in the UK, once wrote, Judging from the selections of readings in an average Christmas carol service, the New Testament begins in the consciousness of the average Christian at Matthew 1.18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. If the average Christian pauses between carols to wonder what the previous 17 verses were all about, his or her curiosity is probably offset by the relief that at least they weren't included in the readings. Uh, A relief that you have been deprived of this morning. And I think we give credit to John for that phenomenal pronunciation of those names. So what is the Christmas season all about? And why does the Gospel of Matthew start the way that it does? Not launching straight into the story, but instead with a genealogy. Well, this morning we begin not merely our Advent series uh, for the next few weeks, but also a whole new series through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, One of the four narratives that we find at the beginning of the New Testament uh, that work together to tell the single story of Jesus Christ. 
Now, the Gospels give us a true story, a story that really happened in history. But they are more than just historical biography. It's more than just a record of what ancient people think and said and and so on. Uh, The Gospels in Scripture are a theological biography. They tell us what God thinks about his son, Jesus, what God says about him, what God uh, thinks about the life and work of his eternal son, who is establishing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And the Gospels tell us a story that we desperately need to hear. We live in a world that is torn apart. We live in a world You know, despite the glitzy veneer of Christmas and and all the lights and glamour and so on, we live in a world of chaos and of conflicting kingdoms. Uh, A world where unrighteousness is often rewarded and injustice often goes unpunished. A world of broken bodies and dashed dreams. A world that's lost its identity and its direction because it's lost sight of its creator and his design and vision for creation. So in other words, in other words, we live in a world of rebellion, not just on earth, but also against heaven, a world where we've thrown off God's rule and sought to replace it with our own. And so therefore, a world filled with skepticism toward the very idea of God, or, or even outrage at the suggestion that God would have any sort of right to rule us or or tell us how to live or or to judge us, uh, heaven forbid. And each one of us in big or small ways contribute to that that rebellion. You know, uh, we think we would do a lot better job of running the world than God does if if you get us alone and honest where, where we can voice those kinds of frustrations. And yet, when you think about it, for all of our passion, for all of our innovation and progress, uh, we live in a world where the fracture continues to deepen every single day. You know, for all the great learning that we've made, you know, our advances in the last 150 years about how the human mind works and how human interaction works, uh, relationships continue to fragment. Uh, friendships, marriages, uh, parenting, uh, you know, families and so on, destroyed by selfishness and greed. And our great learning has done nothing to stop that. For all of our efforts at social reform, people continue to face poverty at alarming numbers. Uh, We still deal with racism, lack of education and opportunities. Uh, For all of our medical research, which is just incredible, and yet cancer continues to claim lives and, and fracture families. AIDS continues to ravage entire nations. You know, for all our political treaties and so on, we still can't stop wars and live at peace among each other. Uh, for all our self-sufficiency, all of our accomplishments uh, as humans, when it comes down to it, we are powerless to do anything about making this world right, let alone making things right with God, whom we've turned our back on. So we live in a world in desperate need of a savior and a king, a savior and a king, someone to rule over the chaos, someone who has the power to actually do something about it, who has the wisdom and the righteousness to do the right thing about it, and someone who is able to rescue us in the midst of it, 
to make right what is wrong and to give light and hope to uh, this dark world. And it's into that very darkness and that very fragmentation that the Gospel of Matthew is speaking to us with a relatively radical message that Jesus is this King of heaven and earth. That Jesus is King of heaven and earth. He claims total authority. He, he demands total allegiance. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he establishes God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, challenging the would-be kingdoms of this world and calling all people to follow him and to make disciples of all nations. Jesus is king of heaven and earth. And so for the next few weeks of Advent, we're going to walk through the prologue of the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 1 and 2, which tell us the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, but also that lay the foundation for the story that's going to unfold through the rest of the book as we continue on uh, in the year ahead. But this morning we're going to see that the story of God becoming king doesn't really even begin here in Matthew either, or in the New Testament. It's a story that stretches all the way back to the beginning in the book of Genesis and covers the whole Old Testament story of Israel. Jesus is the king who fulfills Israel's story. And as such, if if we understand that story, then we'll know that Jesus is the king who gives hope to the entire world. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's pray together and look at our passage. Lord, we do thank you again just uh, for the privilege of having your word and being able to look into it and to hear your voice. Thank you that we are not left to just uh, uh, the random collections of tidbits of what might have happened one day long ago, but that you spoke an authoritative word on history, revealing yourself and who your son is and what he's done. And I pray that that is what you would open our eyes to this morning in Scripture and that you would give us ears to hear your voice and hearts that are ready to be changed by your spirit, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look with me if you have your Bibles in front of you or if uh, you're using the, the Bible in the rack in front of you, that's page 955. Go ahead and look again to uh, Matthew chapter 1. Uh, author and scholar Tom Wright has said, uh, and some of you will have heard me use this quote before, but uh, if you've ever wondered why the New Testament is the book most often bought and least often read in our culture you'll find the answer on the very first page. Abraham begat Isaac, begat Jacob, begat Judah, begat Perez, begat Hezron, begat Aram, begat Aminadab. How much of this can you stand? I mean, the sheer literary nightmare of being hit in the face by a family tree at the very start of a book. A lot of folk pack it in right there. Let's face it. Other people's family trees are about as interesting as other people's holiday videos. So... Why in the world would Matthew start his gospel, his introduction to us of who Jesus is? Why would he start uh, with this? You know, why does the New Testament start this way? And why, for mercy's sake, would we start our Christmas series this way instead of skipping to verse 18 and the, you know, Mary and Joseph and the wise men and the good stuff, you know? Well, very simply because this is where God starts. This is where God starts the story. 
This is where Matthew starts, right here with a genealogy, and he does so for a reason. Genealogies in Scripture are all about connecting stories. So they're, they're true in the information they give, but they're not just here for curiosity's sake or uh, for you know, historical sake. They're there to connect stories. So sometimes they fast forward a story, like the genealogies in Genesis 5 or Genesis 11 or Ruth 4. They're hitting the fast forward button to take you to the next major scene. Uh, sometimes they're more like a rewind in order to go back and connect the story that's going to be told here with something that's happened earlier. First uh, Chronicles 1 through 9 I think Matthew's bad. The first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles are genealogy. That's what that's doing. It's, it's anchoring the story of Chronicles in a story that's come beforehand. And that's what Matthew's doing in chapter 1. Starting with a genealogy reminds us that the story of Jesus is part of a longer journey that's been underway for some time. In fact, the opening words, a record of the genealogy or a book of the Genesis, are lifted straight out of the Greek translation uh, of the book of Genesis uh, back in the Old Testament, the very first book of the Bible, which anchors the story of Jesus in the plot of the book of Genesis. So God's purpose in creation, God's promise in covenant to make for himself a people, who will be with him in his place, under his rule, enjoying his blessing for the sake of his glory, what God intended in creation, what went wrong in the fall, and what he's restoring through his covenant with Israel, Jesus is going to pick up that story and somehow deal with it and bring it forward. And we we see that by the very first words. Matthew continues to introduce his genealogy and to introduce Jesus to us uh, with three titles in the rest of uh, verse 1. He says, Jesus the Christ, or Messiah, which, by the way, is not his last name. Sometimes we think Jesus is the son of Mary and Joseph Christ, and so he's Jesus Christ, like I'm Brandon Levering. Christ is not a name, it's a title, and it means Messiah, or anointed one. And so he's the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, if you were at our Sandy Island retreat uh, a few months ago, uh, we spent a bit of time looking at that first verse and, and talking about what those titles mean. And we'll touch on the significance of those titles as we kind of walk through this genealogy. But the point, I think, is, is pretty clear already that in order to make proper sense of Jesus and his kingdom, we need to hear the story into which he fits. We need to hear the story of the Old Testament. And that's the journey that this genealogy is going to take us on in in the opening lines of Matthew. Now, in this genealogy, in this journey uh, that we're going to walk through, we're going to see four key signposts that are going to kind of lead us and guide us along the way, which Matthew identifies in verse 17. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. So four signposts there, Abraham, David, the exile, and the Christ. And those four figures provide the framework, the structure of this genealogy. And the centerpiece among that is David and his dynasty. 
the, the Davidic dynasty. David is described explicitly as the king in verse 6. I don't know if you notice that. You're walking through. And it's not just David, but it's David the king. And, and then it's his dynasty that stands at the center of the list. You've got 14 generations leading up to David, 14 generations of his dynasty, and then 14 generations coming off of that until we get to the Christ. Uh, some have even suggested that the very number 14 is meant to draw attention to David. If you actually compare this genealogy with other ones in the Old Testament that cover the same family lines, you'll see Matthew's actually shortened it a little bit in order to get this structure of 14, which is uh, no different than calling Jesus the son of Abraham. He's, he's uh, synthesizing it to get 14, 14, 14. It's like, well, why would you do that? Uh, well, some have suggested that it's to draw attention, uh, even further attention to David, because the numeric value of his name in Hebrew is 14, which sounds kind of weird and kind of like Bible codish or something strange like that. But in Hebrew, you don't have a separate sign system for numbers like we do. And so you use the alphabet. A is 1, B is 2, and so on. And, uh, and if you do that with David's name, the sum of the letters is 14. So it could be one more way that we're shining the spotlight on David as central to this story that's unfolding. So we have four signposts that are going to guide us. We also have a few detours in this journey. Uh, details in the genealogy that might strike us as kind of odd or, or catch us off guard a little bit if we're paying attention. Things that are going to break the pattern of Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and so on. So things like the special mention of Judah and his brothers in the genealogy. Why mention the brothers there? Or uh, the mention of David as king, as we uh, said earlier, the mention of Jeconiah and his brothers in verse 11. And probably the most significant detour we see is the intriguing mention of five women in a genealogical form that's usually pretty restricted to just the male generations. Uh, and, and these aren't necessarily the ladies you would expect to find in a genealogy either. These aren't like, you know, uh, Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, the matriarchs of Israel. Instead, we have Tamar in verse 3, who seduced her father-in-law back in Genesis 38. We have Rahab uh, in verse 5, the prostitute that we met back in Joshua 2. We have Ruth, a Moabitess, not even an Israelite, in verse 5. And we have Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, in verse 6, uh, with whom David committed adultery and for whose hand he essentially murdered her husband uh, back in 2 Samuel 11 through 12. Now, we should remind ourselves that in each of these cases, any shame due to the women is just as much, if not more, due to the men involved in those stories. But it's interesting. These are pretty sketchy figures in the story. Almost as sketchy as the fifth woman mentioned, Mary, who was found to be pregnant before she and Joseph wed and was almost divorced because of it. So uh, a few detours uh, along the line, but on to the main route. So we're going to walk through this story, beginning with the story from Abraham to David, which is the first part of our genealogy in verses 2 through 6. Jesus is called the son of Abraham, and that's the, the first figure that the list begins with, which draws our attention all the way back to Genesis 12 and God's promise 
to Abraham in that passage. So Genesis 12, 1 through 3. You can flip there if you want, but we'll also have, I think, the, the passages up behind us. So Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and the peoples on earth, all the peoples on earth, will be blessed through you. This is one of the most fundamental uh, portions of Scripture in terms of what this whole book is about. God wants to bless all nations, and he's chosen Abraham to be the agent and the vehicle through which he's going to do that. So the blessing that God had in mind for all humanity back in creation in Genesis 1 is now going to go forward through Abraham and his offspring. God chose Abraham and made a covenant with him to bless him, to multiply him, to be God to him and his descendants, and to give them a special land. And in in advancing that covenant promise, he says later in Genesis 12, that kings, kings are going to come from Abraham. Uh, God is already looking forward to the establishment of his kingdom on earth, even in this promise to Abraham, I think I said Genesis 12, it's Genesis 17 where it mentions that kings are going to come from him. It was through Abraham and his descendants that the blessing of God was going to go forward to all humanity, that all humanity might know God. And so the promise passed on from Abraham to Isaac, and then from Isaac to Jacob, and from Jacob to Judah and his brothers, the, the 12 tribes of Israel who would become the nation of Israel after God delivered them from slavery in Egypt, which we read about in the book of Exodus. But Genesis 49 clarifies that among Jacob's sons, he's got these 12 sons, they become 12 tribes. The covenant God makes with Israel is with all of them. But among those 12 tribes, the scepter would not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. In other words, it's Judah among his brothers who's going to have the royal line. It's Judah uh, who almost went without offspring because his first two sons died in their wickedness and then he wouldn't give his other son to Tamar who then slept with Judah and bore twins by him. It's from this Judah that the king would come to Israel. And so Matthew's list continues and follows the line from Judah to Perez uh, and his twin brother, Zerah, and from Perez to Hezron and on down the line through the time of slavery in Egypt, through Israel's conquest, or through their wanderings in the wilderness and up until their conquest of the land where they come in and take possession of the land, uh, the land that God promised to Abraham, where we meet a prostitute named Rahab in, in the book of Joshua. Rahab hid some of Israel's spies uh, who, as they plotted the overthrow of Jericho. And because of this, Joshua 6 tells us that Rahab and her father's household were saved from Israel's attack and lived among the Israelites. So it's her righteousness, strangely enough, uh, that she stands out for in the book. And according to Matthew, this same Rahab 
married a fellow named Salmon, and together they had a son named Boaz. And we read about Boaz in the book of Ruth. Uh, it's a beautiful story where Ruth, a, a Moabitess, a, a woman unworthy of the fellowship of God's people because of the sin of her ancestors when they were wandering in the desert and Moab would not allow Israel to pass through their land and, and so on. And there was a curse on her people. And here's Ruth, this Moabitess, who, who comes to Israel, who finds favor in the sight of both God and Boaz. And together with Ruth, Boaz redeems Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, providing for her a son, Obed, who would fill her barrenness and the emptiness and loss of her family. So in the days of the judges, this is a beautiful picture amid such darkness of God's grace working. Uh, and, and this Obed... Uh, who is a son of redemption. He's redeeming Naomi's empty life. This Obed goes on to uh, father a man named Jesse. And from this Jesse, we meet David, the king. So God's working his story forward. Uh, interestingly, Ruth ends similar to how Matthew begins with the genealogy, telling us that whatever we learned in the book of Ruth about this son of redemption, Obed, and, and how Boaz was at work, it's headed to something else, and it's headed all the way to King David. And so that takes us uh, to the story of David to the Babylonian exile. So verses 6 through uh, 11. David is in many ways one of the high points of Israel's story. When you think about all of God's promises and all that he was intending to do, so much of what we think of of the height of Israel's kingdom goes back to the time of David. Uh, unlike Israel's first king, Saul, uh, who was of the tribe of Benjamin, and from whom God removed his spirit because of his sin, uh, David was of the tribe of Judah, a man of God's own choosing, a man after God's own heart. He was the great shepherd king of Israel whom God took from among the literal sheepfolds and then placed him over Israel as king to shepherd God's people and to establish justice for them. God anointed David as king over Israel. And we mentioned a little bit ago that that word anointed is the same word uh, from which we get Messiah and Christ. So I want you to not miss the connection there. Uh, so basically, Messiah comes from the Hebrew word. Christ comes from the Greek word. You put them into English, they both mean anointed. So it's all it's one word, three different languages. So David is anointed. He, they take oil and, and, they, and um, Samuel the prophet uh, puts it on his head to set him apart and consecrate him as king. David is God's chosen and anointed king. And this, to this anointed king, God makes a promise. In 2 Samuel 7, God promises David that when his days are over and he's dead and gone, God is going to raise up his offspring and establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Eight times in the book of, chap of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, eight times the word forever is used. God is building and making a forever kingdom through one of David's descendants. And so David become, David's throne becomes an eternal throne. And it waits to be filled by one of his sons who, according to Isaiah 11, will have 
the spirit of the Lord resting upon him, who will delight in the fear of the Lord to honor God and uh, who will judge the poor and meek with righteousness and equity. He will decide for them with righteousness and equity. A king who's going to exercise justice against the wicked, who will ultimately usher in God's new heavens and new earth. We looked briefly at that passage in Isaiah 11 last night. So this king who's going to sit on David's throne, who's coming, he's the king that we need in a torn and broken world for our our broken and rebellious lives. He's the one who's going to rule over all nations and receive them as his inheritance. And so as we continue walking through that Old Testament story and walking through the story of First and Second Kings, we see a lot of David's descendants taking his throne. And you read those stories and you kind of watch with wide eyes. We've got this amazing promise that God gave to David and what he's going to do to put this world back together again. And here's a king sitting on David's throne. Well, is this the one? How's he going to do? And so we watch king after king. We see David's son Solomon the son whom Bathsheba bore to him. And his wisdom and his wealth were exceeded by no other king, but so were his women, some of whom who turned his heart away from the Lord and caused him or or tempted him to serve pagan gods instead of the true Lord. And so Solomon, uh, you know, disappoints. Then we have Solomon's son Rehoboam, whose folly results in the split of God's people. Instead of God's promises coming to fruition, God's kingdom's torn in two through Rehoboam's leadership. Uh, Judah and Benjamin become the kingdom in the south and everyone else is up in the north. And as we journey forward, we come across king after king after king, most of whom are compared to David uh, and most of whom are found wanting. We have occasional exceptions, Josiah, Hezekiah, but ultimately the kings of Israel are characterized not by righteousness and the fear of the Lord, as Isaiah 11 was looking for, but instead by idolatry and injustice, by exploitation and oppression. So instead of being agents of healing in God's world, they caused the tear to go even deeper. Well, in, resto- in response to that tragedy uh, of Israel and her kings breaking their covenant with God, serving other gods. The Lord uh, makes good on his promise clear back from Deuteronomy to pour out his covenant curse on Israel for their unfaithfulness. And he sends his people, his treasured possession, into exile. Uh, Matthew 1.11 mentions Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. That's how David's dynasty crashes uh, in 111. Listen to what the Lord says to this Jeconiah, or sometimes spelled Jehoiakim. Uh, it's the same person. Listen to what the Lord says to him back in Jeremiah 22. Even if you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I will hand you over to those who seek your life, those you fear to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to the Babylonians. I will hurl you and the mother who gave birth to you into another country where neither of you was born, and there you will both die. Jeconiah had turned his back so desperately on God and led the whole country that way that it came crashing down in exile. 
So, estrangement from God and the unraveling of God's promises. That's where the kingdom of David ends up. The king of Israel's dethroned. The kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Israel's demolished. The temple of the Lord is destroyed and the people of Israel are deported. Uh, which forces us to ask the question at that point in the story, what will become of God's promise to Abraham and his promised blessing for all nations? What will become of his covenant with David? I thought God promised to set one of David's descendants on the, on the throne forever. What's going to happen to that? Will Israel ever return to God and to the land? Will God's kingdom ever be established on earth as it is in heaven? Into the horror and devastation of exile, God speaks words of comfort. As we now come to the story from the the Babylonian exile up to the Christ. Isaiah 40 starts, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. You know, Zion or Jerusalem, the city of the king, may say, as in Isaiah 49, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. But the Lord replies, can a woman forget her nursing child that she would have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. God is not going to forget his people. No, uh, in according to Isaiah 49, he's going to raise up a servant who will bring back the preserved of Israel and who will be a light to the nations, to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, so that God's salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So in response to Jeconiah, the, the last king of Judah, in response to his demise in Jeremiah 22, uh, the next chapter in Jeremiah says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. The promise is not forgotten. Even though Israel has made a mess of everything and have gotten themselves deported, the promise has not been forgotten. And and sure enough, at the end of 2 Kings, we see this Jeconiah taken from among the prisoners and he's allowed to sit at the king's table in Babylon eating with the king. And pretty soon he has sons while in captivity, and his sons have sons. The line continues. But something is very different during this portion of the genealogy, in this part of the story from here on. The genealogical list ceases to be a list of kings. Israel does eventually return to the land. Uh, And Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, whom... We see in Matthew 1.12, he becomes governor of Judah and he helps rebuild the altar in the temple. But he's not a king. He doesn't sit on David's throne. Jerusalem's a mere shadow of her former glory, kept under the thumb of foreign oppressors, foreign pagan kings and kingdoms. And so from here, the story kind of trails off into relative darkness and silence, and God's voice goes unheard. Uh, the glorious salvation, the healing, and the peace that God had promised in Isaiah, 
Israel's return from exile, all of that remains incomplete. It's not here. There's no king in Israel. Jerusalem uh, still pales in glory. Foreign oppressors still reign rather than bowing the knee, as Isaiah said they would. The Gentiles, the non-Jews, whom Isaiah says will, will come and worship God, they're still far off. Now, we know from the history books that Israel didn't give up hope for a kingdom. You have the story of the Maccabean revolt where a non-Davidic family was able to defeat Israel's foreign oppressors for a time and seize the throne, but that too uh, eventually fell apart. And once again, Israel fell under foreign rule in the dark, waiting, waiting for God to make good on his promises. But in the midst of that relative darkness... Matthew reminds us that hope still remained. The promised line of blessing from Abraham through David moved forward and remained intact. Verse 13, Zerubbabel uh, was the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Atzor. And in the quiet, in the in the shadows off stage, God was preparing the climactic chapter of his story. The arrival of the one we've all been waiting for. So Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Methan. Methan, the father of Jacob. And then the genealogy takes a decisive turn in verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. And all of a sudden he's here. The one we have been waiting for centuries. Israel, in the dark, enslaved, bound by their sin, longing for this king. And you read the genealogy and he's here the king we've been waiting for, the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus called the Christ. And notice that he's not the son of Joseph. Uh, the, The genealogical refrain is broken here. There's something different about this son. He carries the right to David's throne, but he is no man's son. The pronoun whom... In, uh, of whom Jesus was born, is feminine in Greek. Jesus is the son of Mary, who, like other women in this story, may appear suspicious at first. Again, you know, pregnant out of wedlock and, and so on. But she plays a role in God's story so significant that according to Luke 148, all generations will call her blessed. Now, the rest of Matthew 1 is going to tell us exactly what this means and how Jesus, uh, uh, how she conceived Jesus, that it was from the Holy Spirit, that God was coming from heaven to earth to take on human flesh. But we'll look at that next week. Here, our genealogy climaxes with the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, the fulfillment of Israel's story, and as such, the hope of the whole world. So before Matthew even says another word, if we've been listening to this story, we already know what this king has come to do. We, we know, <coughs> excuse me, we know that the problems that began back in the garden, 
when humanity rebelled. We know that those problems are now going to be dealt with decisively by this king. We know that he's the son of Abraham through whom God will bless all nations of the earth. We know that he's the son of David upon whom God's spirit rests, who will rule God's people forever and establish God's justice on earth. He's going to do what Adam, what Israel, what David and all the kings failed to do. He's going to be the faithful son, true Israel, who's going to establish God's kingdom on earth, delivering the oppressed, defending the defenseless, rescuing God's people from their sin. We know that he's the answer to Israel's exile. That even though they were back in the land, but there was no king and they still continued uh, to be apart from God, that this Jesus is the one who's going to complete Israel's return from exile, who will bring Israel back to God and shine his light to the nations, to all peoples. Which means that in the hope of Israel, we find our very hope. We find the answer to the chaos and the frustration and the rebellion of our own hearts, the mess of our own lives, even today. The fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's story is good news, not just for Israel, but for all people. It's good news for the whole world. God chose Abraham and Israel in order to bless all nations. Uh, And that blessing is now available to all, Jew and Gentile, only through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the king that we've all been waiting for. He is the king who brings new life and hope to a world that's been torn apart. If we fast forward to the end of Matthew's gospel, we find out what it would ultimately take for Jesus to establish God's kingdom on earth. The death and resurrection of the king. It's through his sacrifice on the cross for us, uh, in our place, and through his resurrection on the third day that Jesus ultimately claimed God's reign and rule over this earth and brought it to bear, dealing with the punishment of our sin that we deserved and defeating all evil. Uh, and, and at the end of Matthew, we find a scene in, in the story where just before Jesus is betrayed and, and taken before the Jewish authorities, he shares a meal with his disciples. And it's a meal that looks forward to the victory of his kingdom. Uh, it's the last supper that he had. And at the end of that meal, he instituted what we now call the Lord's Supper. Uh, again, a reminder and a celebration of what he accomplished as the king of heaven and earth. It's a victory meal uh, that Jesus has conquered sin, and yet it's an anticipation of the greater victory to come when he returns again. So in that meal, first Jesus took the cup and explained you know, that this cup uh, was a sign of the new covenant in his blood, that God was doing a new thing with his people, a new relationship through Jesus' death on the cross. Then he took the bread and explained to his followers that it was a sign of his body that was going to be broken for us. In order to heal the brokenness of this world, our king would give his body to be broken in our place. 
And through his sacrifice, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he would make us and the whole world new again. He would begin to establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And that is ours through faith in him. So we're going to celebrate this table, this meal, the Lord's Supper this morning. And if you uh, have placed your faith personally in Christ, if he is your king, your savior, and your hope is in him, I invite you to, to join in this celebration, to join in this meal with us. Uh, if you are not sure whether or not you're a Christian or you're not quite sure what exactly that means, um, then I encourage you just let the elements pass this morning. Uh, would love to visit with you more and help you understand that. But instead of taking the sign this morning, uh, ask in your heart, you know, search in your heart in order to take the real thing, Jesus himself, our king, by faith. So uh, as the ushers come forward, let's go ahead and pray and commit this meal to the Lord. God, we do thank you so much for your grace. We thank you that you have not left uh, this world uh, in turmoil. Though we confess, Lord, we feel it daily. But we thank you that through Christ your kingdom has dawned. And that he will, just as you were faithful to your promises to send him the first time, which we celebrate with Advent, you will be faithful to send him the second time when he will make right all things that are wrong uh, once and for all, where we will be in your presence. There will be no more pain, no more crying, no more sin, nothing that, that comes between us and you, nothing that comes between us and one another. Lord, we long for that day and hasten it. And thank you that we can celebrate by faith the confidence that we have with this meal, that Jesus is our king, that he has claimed the victory, and it was through his broken body and his shed blood. So we commit this meal to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.